Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, we have a big one for you this month. Um, <laughs> it looks like blockbusters are back, uh, thank God. Uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, better known online as hashtag SnyderCut, hashtag yeah. Restore the Snyderverse, etc, etc. Uh, uh, we'll be talking about <laughs> four hour long um, cut. Uh, essentially, it's a director's cut, like, basically. you know, The, the yeah. four hour long director's cut of the Justice League. Uh, long-awaited Zack Snyder's original vision finally put the screen in all its uh, 4x3 glory on HBO Max uh, mm-hmm. and on HBO Go in Singapore and in Southeast Asia if you're living you know, in Singapore with us. Uh, plus, we'll be talking about the newest release from Disney Animation, uh, currently mm-hmm. out on Disney Plus in Singapore theaters, Raya and the Last Dragon, the first ever Disney princess uh, who is Southeast Asian, by the way. Uh, we'll be talking about Dota Dragon's Blood, the much-anticipated anime adaptation of Dota 2. Oh, uh, we'll yeah. be talking about Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, the heavyweight rematch everyone's been waiting for. Uh, Solar Opposite Season 2 just came out, plus uh, a few indie horrors I want to talk about. Um, a much maligned uh, blockbuster chaos walking, which didn't really work <laughs> out. You know, um, there, there are the Irregulars, the Specific Rim, uh, a Pacific Rim Enemy as well or, on yeah. Netflix, the season two of Snowpiercer and much, much more. Uh, we'll get to that sooner, but I, I guess we should begin with what everyone's talking about. Uh, the, the, the title that finally launched HBO Max into a premium service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it got them a lot of subscribers. Of course, I'm talking about Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League and and for years you know uh, ever since uh, what people like to call Justice League came out uh, Justice League <laughs> version for years like yeah. fans of, of Zack Snyder have, have wondered like, often to the point of um, questionable fervor mm-hmm. uh, what could have happened in an alternate world where he got to finish his 2017 film and, and four years later tens of millions of dollars later Warner Brothers has opened a Pandora's box to place mm. us in that reality by finally uh, releasing the mythical uh, Snyder Cut. It feels almost impossible to talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League, uh, a massive four-hour-long undertaking, yeah. outside the context <laughs> of its role to release. You know, It's obviously born from tragic circumstances of his daughter's uh, um, unfortunate suicide yeah. uh, that, that pulled uh, Snyder and his producer uh, slash wife, uh, Deborah from, from the project Mid-Filming, uh, a circumstance that you are reminded throughout the film, not just for its fascination with death and rebirth, but in its uh, you know, final dedication to Snyder's daughter. So mm-hmm. this is a, a version of the film that did not exist when Warner Brothers hastily put uh, Joss Whedon uh, to, to Frankenstein, a version of the film, in only yep. a few short months. Uh, in the wake of that film's critical and box office disappointment, um, a failure that sort of reoriented the direction of Warner Bros. the the DCEU in general, you know, mm-hmm. um, into a more lighter, uh, friendlier, uh, brighter tone. You know, um, Wonder Woman, uh, Shazam, etc. Um, Snyder's most dedicated fans, who was who were still smarting, mind you, from the critical <laughs> from the critical drubbing that that BVS faced. Um, Rally to demand that Justice League's original director get a chance to make his version, and and here we are. So, um, I guess regardless of how you feel about Zack Snyder's aesthetic or artistic vision, yeah. um, the the fact that he managed to complete his passion project after so much professional and personal turmoil, I think in the end, as a human being, is something to be celebrated and honored. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, like definitely. 
it 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 definitely is a labor of love on on Zach Snyder's part, right? Mm-hmm. Like a a big part of this, and of course, the you know a very touching dedication to his his um his daughter. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think it's definitely worth worth celebrating. Um, yeah. just the achievement of it itself, right? And the fact that at the end of the day, very honestly, like. You know, whether or not you're a fan of his work, whether or not you're a fan of the DCEU, I mean, the mm. more stuff we kind of get, you know, the better it is, generally speaking. Mm. Uh, but that, if, if, if considering all of that at the same time, I think we still need to take the work for what it is. Mm, of uh, course, and then you know. maybe after we kind of weigh in for that, you know, mm. maybe we should talk about whether or not, based upon this, the Snyderverse should be restored, right? Mm-hmm. Um whether it um, garners any merit just from this very long outing that we had with the Justice League or yeah. whether or not, um, you know, it's it's better as kind of like a, a magnum opus and a swan song at the same time for, for everything within that Imagine franchise. And of course. to be clear, right, it is largely an Imagine franchise, right? Mm. Uh, at this point in time, with the exception of BVS and now, of course, the Snyder Cut, um, everything else exists in, in Zack Snyder's head, so... Uh, and and in the mind of his fans, apparently. Yes, yes. I, I suppose in Warner Brothers' point of view, it would be unwise for them not to restore the Snyder Cut considering the box office. Like, I mean, everything else is subjective, but the objective thing is that stuff like Shazam and Wonder Woman 1984 yeah. uh, and, and Aquaman have, haven't really done well, uh, either mm. critically or commercially, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and for all you can say about Snyder's works, Man of Steel and BVS, they did do well. Yeah. Um, so... With all that in mind, how was um, the Snyder Cut actually as a product? And I feel like in many ways, this Justice League is quite, quite very much different from the Whedon tweet version of four years ago. Yeah. Um, number one, the pacing, the pacing has changed. Um, mm. Entire plot threads have been jettisoned or threaded back in. Yeah. Um, its characters are more, uh, more morose uh, as originally intended. And the stakes have been deepened. Uh, by uh, the looming of an apocalypse that presumably would have taken place in a sequel, which I guess may or may not come to be. Um, yeah. There's an operatic, uh, operatic, operatic uh, <laughs> sense of grandeur and scale to Snyder's vision that Whedon lacks with his more TV-oriented um, framing. Um, DC's heroes have always been presented as gods, unlike the more you know human-centric foibles of Marvel's heroes and mm-hmm. and Snyder kind of sees that um, as his vision uh, but while there is plenty new Justice League's story is almost shockingly fairly identical to Whedon's version yeah. um, we pick up the VVS uh, the world and his heroes are still mourning the death of Superman played by Henry Cavill um, a new threat in the form of uh, invading cosmic warmonger Steppenwolf emerges uh, and he's working to regain his standing with uh, his master the Lord of Apocalypse Dark side, so Steppenwolf seeks free Marvel, Marvel boxes left on Earth uh, in a prior invasion attempt thousands of years ago. So mm-hmm. these devices are capable of reforging the planet, uh, and it helps Darkseid find the anti-life equation which is on Earth. Um, essentially, the, the broad strokes of the story are, are pretty much intact, you know. So yeah. um, what, what do you think of the, the Snyder Cut, how it differs, and, and, and what it is uh, as, a stand- as a standalone project, I guess? Um... Okay, the Snyder Cut is certainly superior to the cut that we got for theatrical release. Mm. But that's not saying much. Mm. Um, I do feel that uh, a couple of the threads that were tied up made it a lot neater. 
Mm. Um, it didn't feel like someone suddenly stepped in and changed everything, which was literally what happened. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I mean, of course, at that point in time, you're right that you didn't. The studios didn't really have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the matter, given the tragedy and all of that. And uh, Joss Whedon didn't have time to do his own Justice League and had to like Frankenstein together bits and pieces from yeah. Snyder's vision and his own vision. Yeah. So it was never going to work out. Yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. And I think like at that point in time, we kind of understood that. Uh, by and large, I think most most audience of the audience are kind of understood that, right? And yeah. like in light of what happened and the reason that, that Snyder and his wife had to pull out, uh, of the project, you know, uh, I think people were more than forgiving. I think a lot of non Snyder fans were thinking that Joss would come in and <laughs> and and be this miraculous savior, right, and kind of mm. like um, change DCEU's uh, woes that they've been having for so long. Mm. Uh, but that clearly wasn't the case. Uh, the movie, in and of itself, um, is overlong. Uh, what we are just past four hours. 10% of that is in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's 24 minutes of your life that you you watch in slow motion. Um, mm-hmm. I do like certain things like the slight, uh, gr- slightly greater emphasis on Cyborg's uh, storyline mm-hmm. and kind of his history. But I did feel that large swaths of it could have been better dealt with in his own movie, which was supposed to be kind of the point. Uh, yeah, uh, some of the fight scenes are definitely superior. I think like the final fight scene, Superman was definitely more badass in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as much as Snyder's full vision fixed a lot of things from the uh, what Whedon had done, uh, it still has its kind of own problems, right? Like mm. I, I never really kind of understood this whole idea that the Justice League calls each other by their first names when they're out in the public. Mm. Uh, and and that kind of like carries on here. Um, uh, good God, Ezra, Ezra Miller's Flash is the most annoying Flash I've seen like of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a speedster, right? He has he has one of the worst running forms I've ever seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of things to kind of nitpick about, but again, it is a better movie, I think, uh, personally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it warrants bringing back Snyder's entire vision for another, like, three, four movies. Mm, um, plus new scenes as well. Yeah, plus all the new scenes and, and stuff like that. I mean... Uh, okay, I I actually kind of enjoyed the very last scene that have had pretty much absolutely no impact, right? With, with, in which one of, mm. the, one of the heroes that is part of the Justice League um, much later on appears to Batman, yeah. right? Yep. So I think that was perfectly fine. I actually thought that was in and a very interesting way to kind of like promise something into the future. The whole mm. nightmare thing didn't like it in the first one. Mm. Uh, didn't like it here either. I think the inclusion of what Jared Leto's Joker could have been was interesting. Mm-hmm. I like the shades that it you know references the whole injustice um, storyline, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think that necessarily. You know, like sure, you're 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 paying homage, right, to all these kind of things. There's plenty of fans of it all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good or even great movie for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
plot-wise, you know, um, Batman is still processing his guilt from, from his role in Superman's death. And he and Alfred, uh, played by Jer- Jeremy Irons, uh, find themselves in this race against time to recruit uh, a force of metahumans capable of stopping uh, Steppenwolf's plot. You know, yep. there is, you know, Jason Momoa's Aquaman, Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, Ezra Miller's Flash, uh, Cyborg Victor Stone, played by Ray Fisher. What all this means is that you are not entirely engaging with something completely new in of itself, uh, yeah. despite it being kind of different. Like, the, a good portion of it is entirely new. Char- but in the end, characters start and end mostly as they did in the original version. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is, you know, of course, much embellishment along the way. Uh, and as you mentioned, this, this hit spinning epilogue that, that serves almost as a, a farewell to Snyder's vision yeah. of DC movie making and perhaps, you know, a tease to its potential future. Um, I think he just did that because he knew he wasn't going to get to do it in a, in a sequel. So, you know, he just slapped it on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for the most part, I, I, I enjoyed it. It has uh, yeah, it has a sto- story that fully earns the four-hour runtime uh, yeah. because it couldn't have been done in a two-hour movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the pleasures of seeing this cast of characters together, um, I think overwhelms the many negatives uh, I have uh, and and I had and do have. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, there is more grandeur. And, and heightened stakes that feel much more befitting of DC's Justice League formation yep. than, the, than the TV movie vibes of the 2017 film, mm-hmm. which is ironic given that you will experience 2021's Justice League through <laughs> a television screen. Yeah. Um, the, the added moments that Snyder brings to Justice League, I think, offer um, a... a, a, a vital depth of character to most of them. Um, mm-hmm. He uses the additional runtime to pace the growth of his heroes and bring them together in ways that are far less clunky than the predecessor. Yep. Um, so instead of feeling like a rushed, hacked-up race to a third-act explosion fest, um, Snyder, I think, uses the expanded scope um, to scale... Uh, to, to up its scale uh, and, and to spend time with heroes and villains alike, you know, the, the, the League themselves now actually get to breathe and, and spend time with each other outside of the major elements of, you know, the superheroic fights. There, are, there, there is naturally uh, more natural ways to, to portray their growth into a unit of allies compared, yeah. to, or, compared to the original. And it also lets them sit as people beyond their status as some of the world's most recognizable heroes. So even though events largely play out similarly, yep. um, those events at least now feel much more natural and cohesively progress throughout, creating mm-hmm. a stronger, more coherent process, uh, of a, a film in a process. Lah. So Snyder has this unique vision uh, of these characters and with the runtime, I feel that I can finally see it. Yep. You know, um, I never quite got it before. His ideas of Batman and Superman and Flash and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Cyborg, it's kind of a mix of, of classical and his own gritty Injustice-esque take. Mm-hmm. And I think I've kind of finally come around to his alternate universe, you know, his his little Elseworlds that he's created. Yep. I, I particularly enjoyed his handling of Superman as a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, his take on Steppenwolf feels much more fleshed out here yep. than the rather cartoon villain that we got in 2017, <laughs> you know. The, the the Steppenwolf of the Snyder Cut is, is just poor guy. He's desperately trying to impress his boss via Zoom and... That's relatable. Um, <laughs> his take on Batman's guilt, you know, which, yep. which kind of proves that Ben Affleck's casting was actually quite inspired. Um, his belief in Ray Fisher's great performance as the tragic cyborg, which is mangled by Whedon, mm. uh, um, is great. And, and finally, for all his faults, I think Snyder knows how to direct action 
yep. better than anyone else on the DCEU roster. Mm-hmm. From the battle at Temeskira in the beginning, all the way up to the f- final sequence, Snyder has an, has an eye for the epic that feels unmatched by, say, Patty Jenkins or, or James Wan or Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, but that being said, the film is pure Zack Snyder. All his best and <laughs> all his best and worst parts are, 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 are in this. This is pure yep. Snyder. Yeah. The, the Snyder cut is, by definition, right? It's the Snyder cut. By definition, pure indulgence in Snyderisms, mm. and 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 Snyder's distinct visual style. You know, he 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 is filmmaking only in splash pages. Um, shots slow as molasses. Um, speedy CGI characters hurtling across the screen. These rotating zooms and pans. Uh, moody shots set to an ominous chorus of, you know, women's uh, chanting. Uh, he likes to do it a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it gets a bit much at times, you know. Like, like one, one thing the Snyder Cuts makes very clear is that Snyder is infatuated with the violence that superheroes are capable of. Mm. Sometimes that works. Like, yeah. when, we, when we highlight the Amazonians' uh, willingness to sacrifice their, their really ripped bodies to, to, to protect Themyscira, you know? Yeah. Or how he power scales Superman against other heroes, demonstrating just how terrifying uh, a real-life dangerous Superman can be. Um, but obviously, at, at, at other times, it feels gratuitous or edgelordy, you know? Um, a scene of Diana, um, in, quote-unquote, inspiring a group of schoolgirls after she just got done brutally murdering them in front of in front of all of them, you know there there yep. is blade brains <laughs> and explosions and blood splatter. He punches them into the walls, crushing their heads, you know. Um, and then he goes up to a girl and then tries to inspire them. It's that that kind of stuff is unintentionally hilarious, you know. <laughs> Um, like, like, like when the girl says or asks, you know, if she can be just like her. In the in the background, there's literal like carnage and blood splattered corpses of the people that Diana could have easily subdued, but instead chose to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, she she's so easily overpowered them. She could have just you know apprehended them. Yeah. And the, and the fact that she tells the girls that yes, you can, despite the fact that the chick is not a god, you know, I mean, what you gonna do? It's just unintentionally hilarious, lah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So th- th- those were my pros and cons for the film. Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh it's it's hard to. I think for me personally, it became hard to enjoy when you kind of realize how humorless it largely is. I think I basically got like two or three chuckles out of the entire film, right? Mm-hmm. And one of it was just a very awkward uh, Alfred's unintentional mansplaining of how to make tea to Diana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a British, it's a British thing. Yeah, yeah uh, and, it, and I mean, outside of that, uh, I mean, really, like uh, a lot of it was difficult. I mean, like the fight scenes were great, right? Like, if there there are stories and there are characters that I think perfectly fit what Snyder wants to do. Like, for example, I would love Snyder to do Wonder Woman as the God of War arc. That mm. would be perfect for him, right? And Wonder Woman is clearly his favorite Justice League character. By yeah, miles, yeah, like uh, the, him and Cyborg, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, Cyborg was you know going to be kind of like his personal pet project that he was going to like grow from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of understand that. Um, yeah, I, just generally, I feel like after four hours, it was like a, I had to grudgingly kind of agree. Okay, sure, like this deserves to exist. Um, but I don't know if that necessarily extends to all the other things that he has in his head, right? And of course, it's an incredibly smart move, um, given that Twitter uh, basically brought this movie to life, and then um, in his interviews, he basically told the rest of the world, like, oh, this were, these were the things I had in mind 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, with the release of this whole thing. So I, if I'm not wrong, I just checked this morning. Uh, we are currently at 1.8 million tweets mm-hmm. for the hashtag Restore the Snyderverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am curious as to whether or not Sony is being quiet because they want to see how um, Suicide Squad does first. WB, you mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. WB. Um, yeah, then we'll see how that goes. Lah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because like Gun, Gun's vision for, for Suicide Squad is like a completely different thing, right? Mm. And given like the amount of resources it takes to run a cinematic universe of this, you know, scale... Uh, I don't think they're interested in having like kind of like multiple visions for that. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, all in all, like I really enjoyed the fight scenes. I I, I really enjoyed like the change in Stefan Wolf. Mm. Uh, I did not enjoy Ezra Miller's Flash. I'm not looking forward to that movie at all after seeing what we got this time around. Um, yeah. So like kind of mix a mixed bag for me. You know, mm. um, it did feel like I did have to take a break in the middle of all that. I was just like, okay. Um, but yeah, so I'm not as convinced, perhaps as you are, uh, a bit grudging, begrudgingly having to, like, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of good things and a lot of good stuff and definitely a better movie overall, but I'm still not a fan. Yeah, yeah. I think in the end, uh, Justice League is, is a peculiar thing to consider as, as a work. Like. It is yeah. um, undoubtedly a, a stronger and more emotional movie than the version released in 2017 and much more coherent, much more enjoyable. Um, I like the score by Junkie XL, mm. uh, bet- better than James Newton Howard's other score in the previous yeah. film. Um, I, I, I actually like the pacing. I, I actually felt it felt faster than Joss Whedon's version. Um, it felt like uh, Joss Whedon's version was a two-hour movie that felt like a four-hour movie, <laughs> and and this was a four-hour movie that felt like a two-hour movie. Um, and and I liked Snyder's grandeur and grasp of you know the the the, the physics of the heroes, you know, like his little things, like you know, like the little, little touches that he does, the, the the air bubbles that the the Atlanteans create and things like that. Like I like his physics, you know, like I like he has an eye for those type of details that he doesn't have for character work. Yeah. Um, that being said, for like it isn't perfect for someone who who rankles at, at Snyder's aesthetic and, and mm. his odd his odd soundtrack choices, um, the slow mo excesses, you know, to the point where I think like there is a ten second sequence where a sesame seed gets a slow mo, um, his his heavy handedness, uh, but yeah, I guess I'm happy for Zach and Deborah Snyder and their fans. Uh, so mm. you know, any concluding thoughts before you give your rating? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, a, a better movie got made. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people are happy, right? That you know they they called for something. It finally got made and helped help basically you know um the Snyder family com- complete something, right? That was mm-hmm. the near and dear to their hearts. Yeah. So all of those things I think are good things. Uh, I for one am still not convinced that we should have more of that. Uh, as far as like the Snyderverse goes, um, because I think that ship has sailed. Right, uh, and I, I think maybe the studio execs think the same way, um, but yeah, that's uh, we'll see. We'll see where this goes with with Suicide Squad coming up, and you know, um, the Flash movie is still on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, time will tell whether or not you know this has been convincing enough, and whether or not the upswell of of rallying support um, will make a difference in terms of whether or not we get more within the Snyderverse. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah, um, so in the end, I'm giving this a 7 out of 10. Okay, okay. I'm not too far away, actually. I'm giving a 6 out of 10. 
Nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, generally positive uh, reactions to this. Uh, I do feel like this is Snyder's best DCEU film um, by a mile, actually. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, may- maybe Man of Steel comes close. VVS was an abject failure. I think mm-hmm. everyone yep. recognizes that, even most hardcore Snyder fans. And, yep. and uh, this Snyder cut more or less kind of redeems his, his vision. Yeah. Um, it may not be for everyone, but, you know, it, it was good in the end. You know, we both gave it positive ratings, although not enthusiastic ratings. But mm-hmm. yeah, in, in, in the end, it, it worked out well, you know, even for people who, uh, I think if you listen to this podcast a while, we've traditionally not enjoyed um, Snyder stuff. Uh, yeah. And we, we ended up enjoying this. So, so kudos to him and his fans. And credit to the Snyder Cut people who, uh, have long held this reputation as being like a really toxic fandom, which is true to a point. <laughs> um, but also they've raised uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, crowdfunding-wise yep. for, for uh, suicide prevention awareness charities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's great. And I, I, and I think that doesn't get you know, enough uh, attention as well. You know, there's, the good, there's the good and the bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next up, let's, let's go to a different streaming service. Uh, let's go to Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney Plus. Or mm. in, if you live in Singapore, you can watch it on Disney Plus for 30 bucks. Or you can just, you know, go watch it on the weekend for 9.50 at your local cinema. Uh, I would much rather do that, to be honest. <laughs> but um, Disney's growing canon of Princesses of Color, uh, which include Jasmine, mm-hmm. Pocahontas, Mulan, Esmeralda, and Moana, has a new member in, in Raya, uh, who is voiced by Kelly Marie Tran here. Um, in what has been hailed as a groundbreaking moment for the for the long legendary studio, its latest animated feature doesn't just introduce its first Southeast Asian characters. I think mm-hmm. writers uh, Queen Nguyen and Adele Lim, uh, alongside their creative team, uh, went to great lengths to try to accurately represent the region in terms of food and architecture mm. and character design. Um, now, while we may applaud the effort to nail cultural details, uh, well-intentioned representation might be wasted if the film itself isn't worth watching, you know. So mm-hmm. um, who cares if, reputation, uh, if representation <laughs> is done good if yeah. the film is not good? So how does Raya and the Last Dragon fare? I think quite well, mm-hmm. but not perfectly. There are some issues with the representation too because there's only actually one Southeast Asian person of Southeast Asian heritage in the cast. Yeah. Uh, but I, I kind of don't want to nitpick on that. There's too much like politicking going on in voice acting anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I do feel like this fantasy epic is a thrilling adventure underpinned by, you know, a strong emotional core. It has by far the most breathtaking fight sequences I've seen in a Disney film. Mm-hmm. Um, stunning visuals, ambitious world building, excellent humor. Um, some, you know, fairly complex characters. You know, it's not super complex, but it's deeper than I would have thought they, they were going to go. Yeah. Uh, star-studded voice cast who all did a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Raya proves to be a wildly entertaining, all-ages fable about acceptance and found families and the power of trust all in all, you know. Uh, but there are some flaws with it. Um, what, 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 what do you think about Raya? I mean, all in all, I really liked it. I, I thought conceptually it was cool, right? Uh, yeah. You know, just especially like kind of the opening scene kind of caught me with this whole idea of it being like a fantasy post-apocalyptic <laughs> wasteland yeah. uh the the costumes were great i thought the music was great um the whole heist thing uh okay you know kind of like seen it done before in 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 uh, over time and all of that uh i don't think it was as emotionally hard-hitting as a lot of disney stuff we've seen re- recently um but yeah, I really, really did enjoy it. Like the fight scenes are so impressive. I have to mm-hmm. say, 
Um, it's a, just generally a lot more dynamic than what we've gotten before. And I think, of course, the story setting itself did allow for that. Uh, I felt the characters were strong. I thought the mythology was interesting. Um, all in all, I thought the visuals uh, elements were very beautiful. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think they did a really, really good job uh, all in all. Um, yeah. Pacing was a bit strange in parts, I, th- I feel. Uh, like I feel like every time they visited a new city to go and get something done, you know, you just have like a vignette of 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 a heist, and then you you kind of got to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I perhaps I was expecting a bit more kind of like um character development during the travel time and and things like that, right? The interpersonal relationships, um, between some of the characters don't feel well earned enough sometimes, uh, which makes like you know. The, the jump near the end, right? Where where it's, it's a call to action for trust to feel a bit uh, of a shortcut, mm. in my opinion. Um, but yeah, like other than that, you know, it's it's a fun romp. Um, mm-hmm. It's very nice to see kind of like Southeast Asian motifs and, and, and dress and, and food um, it, on screen and represented yeah. really well, um, visually at least. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's very little to complain about, uh, and you know, hopefully we get to see more of of, of Disney venturing into more representative stuff because we get interesting stories out of it. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think one of the most intriguing aspects of the film was was the world building. I think that the, the film it opens with this zippy millennia spanning history, right, to the fictional mm-hmm. country of Kumandra. You know, five hundred years ago, they introduced the plague creatures known as the Droon, who stalked the land where humans and dragons lived together in peace and harmony, and then they turned people and dragons alike into stone, and they were yep. only stopped when Sisu, who is the last remaining dragon, sacrificed herself by using her energy to craft this magical gem. Uh, subsequently, the country splintered because of course they did, uh, with each of its clans breaking off into five distinct lands. Uh, mm-hmm. Fang, Spine, Talon, Tail, Heart, uh, each uh, named after, you know, the, the country kind of is in the shape of a dragon on, yeah. on, on the map. So the, the different lands take the, take the names from where they're located. La. Um, and, and the Heart Clan, which is where our hero is, has long held on to Sisu Stone, which draws the ire of the other, other clans. You know? So we fast forward, we meet a tween Raya and her single dad, Banja, voiced by Daniel Day Kim. Uh, they've been tasked with protecting Sisu's gem. And, and Raya is this kind of well-trained, badass warrior, and she takes her duty seriously. Uh, whereas her father is instead focused on reuniting Kumandra, mm-hmm. uh, convinced that decades of strife and tension can be healed. Uh, unfortunately, at first, Benja is gravely mistaken, and after being double-crossed by fellow Princess Namari, played by Gemma Chan, uh, and accidentally summoning the return of the Droon, Raya loses everything, her father, most of the Shattered Gems, and any hope that Kumandra can ever be reunified. I really like that premise, you know, and then mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. fast forward to six years later, we find our titular heroine, uh, accompanied by a really adorable giant pillbug sidekick named Tuk Tuk. Yep. Um, Kind of, she's kind of compelled by sorrow, compelled by regret. She embarks on this quest to find the last dragon and save the world from the druids. And Raya does manage to awaken the spirit of Sisu. Um, but in one of my favorite parts of the films, um, and, and I did not watch the trailers, so I didn't know this was going to happen. Mm. Um, she hilariously discovers that the water dragon is actually kind of a ditzy teen. <laughs> um, a voice to awkward perfection by Aquafina. Yes. Um, it's a highly amusing gag. Uh, like, you know, never meet your heroes, right? You know, that yeah. kind of don't meet your celebrity heroes. <laughs> um, that kind of 
kind of while initially jarring, pays off with with really good laughs and and a relief from quite a dark story. Mm. Um, like the centuries of mythologizing Sisu's brave final act, right? They kind of skimmed over her personality, and but despite her hybrid nature, like I like the idea that Sisu is the only one who really understands the power of someone who just wants to help, mm-hmm. even if they're not necessarily equipped to do things on their own. It's a lesson that Raya and the other commandants that she meets will, will have to learn soon enough. So while it seems like a joke at first, I think Sisu is this essential part of the film's messaging about the humanity behind heroism. And, and together, the pair, you know, they, they as you said, <laughs> in, in the, it, they decide to do a bunch of heists to, yep. to gather the gems, join them together. So along the way, they pick up Zay, is any new pals? There is a Kongi slinging kid ship captain, Boone, uh, yep. played by Isaac Wong, the gruff warrior Tong, uh, voiced by Benedict Wong, who I could not recognize his voice, great voice acting, mm. uh, to even a baby con artist, played by Talia it. Tran. Yep. yep. And, and a monkey <laughs> friend. So it's kind of this wacky assemblage, perfect for a kids' movie. Uh, but Ryan the Last Dragon is quite rooted in emotion, and this Molly crew is. I think capable of kicking up big laughs, great action sequences, and, and some tears as well towards the end. Mm. Um, so the, the group moves through this gorgeously colorful commandra, right? I think directors uh, Don Hall and Carla Lopez Estrada do a great job of giving each province uh, very distinct looks, you know, yes. in terms of terrain or weather or things like that. So the, the, the adventure kind of keeps the audience engaged visually and emotionally each step of the way, learning about these new, new parts of the world. Lah. So uh, there is neither a love story nor, a, nor musical numbers here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, quite different for, for, I guess, Disney animation. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like neither the musical numbers or love stories are missed. Uh, so because this is a film that, that is brimming over with trying to educate um, what five to ten-year-olds about, you know, trust about very thought-provoking themes. Yeah. Um, the dazzling action and eye-popping fantasy particularly replaces the musical and love story very well, particularly the fights. The choreography mm-hmm. is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, Namari is, is a decent villain, um, kind of portrayed as a fallible human with complex motivations of her own. Uh, her relationship with Raya is, I think, the crux of the film's messaging. Yep. Um, as kids, they were joined by their love for dragons. Uh, and while that affection has been kind of twisted over the years, I think it, it holds the key to solving their respective problems, if only they can see past their anger and differences. So, like, we live in this age where people seem to be stuck in uh, tribalistic divisions more so than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's rejuvenating uh, to teach kids, uh, you know, uh, to see a movie make a case for reaching out to our enemies and trusting them to put the common good above factional rivalry. Uh, the convenience with, ha- with how that is achieved is probably the, the main flaw of the film. Yeah. Uh, but that being, and uh, you know, I, I suppose Ryan and the Last Dragon's lessons can feel repetitive and heavy-handed at times as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are some of my issues with it. Like. And, and also, it's not nearly the apex of Southeast Asian representation that Disney wishes it to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's only one Southeast Asian voice in the large cast. Um, and it falls quite far behind the beautiful specificity of films like Coco um, mm. or Moana. Yep. Um, likewise, it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of blatant visual and thematic and story similarities to, to Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra and mm. it does the film no favours. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, those are my strengths and weaknesses for the films. Uh, would you agree or disagree with any one of them? Yeah, I think um, the similarity between a lot of other kind of like franchises felt uh, kind of that way, right? Like, yeah. uh, obviously, Avatar The Last Airbender with how everything is kind of broken up with the different tribes and all. Um, sure. Mm. 
but again, like even even for example, right, uh, Raya's relationship with uh, Namari with Namari, like that's like sh- straight up like Shira stuff right there, right? Yeah. Uh, but just like condensed and and like watered down, you know. So it 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 really didn't help, and I was just wondering like why. I like. I was wondering if I was the only one who felt that way. Like the similarities are way too striking, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, of course, Avatar is a great thing, right? Like we can go on and on about how great all of that is. It, it is. It is not necessarily a bad thing to want to emulate that kind of greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there were just kind of moments. I was like, really? Are we really just kind of like going in that direction? Okay, cool. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that could have been done. Given given that it was supposed to be so specific to like Southeast Asian culture, right? Like that yeah. we didn't have to kind of like you know um, reference uh, Airbender. Yeah, yeah. So just the kind of thing. Like uh, again, I really did enjoy this. All in all, not perfect. Um, it could have been. It could have been pretty amazing, actually. I think, but there is a line that they have to kind of thread. Um, or at least they feel like they have the thread and, and they decided to stick to that. So, okay lah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like regardless of the flaws, like it's still a visually glorious, uh, very enjoyable and 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 quite, you know, engaging spectacle mm. uh, that should be embraced for um, some of the challenging things on its mind and, and the hope for humanity in its heart. Uh, which yep. is why I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, the caveat is I think this this would have worked better as a TV show rather than a film. I would definitely have watched a TV show. Like, if they really were going all out to get that kind of, like, airbender vibes, they should have they should have done that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, all in all, like, they, I don't know, just some missed opportunities, man. Like, the costumes were so cool. Like, so many things were just really cool to see on screen. But mm-hmm. it never really got past that in a lot of areas. So, oh well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually could see Disney Plus easily spinning this off into a TV show. It looks... Like it, it almost feels like that's what they plan to do, like, like this is almost a pilot episode. To, to be honest, you know, in the, in the way that it's presented. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Um. Speaking of dragons, uh, <laughs> we're gonna jump into a very, very different type of animated dragon mm-hmm. here. Uh. Next up, we're gonna go to Netflix for their adaptation of Dota Two. Uh. Called Dota's Dragon's Blood. Um. Great anime, man. Dragon's mm. Blood is an exceptional anime that you can find on Netflix. Uh, exceptional adaptation of Dota 2, uh, the video game franchise, which is very popular. And yeah. I think it, it would delight fans and newcomers alike. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm speaking as a, fa- a non-fan of the games. I've never played Dota. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was utterly blown away by the series. It's fucking phenomenal. It's Castlevania-level good. Yeah. Um, the sweeping fantasy series, it tells the story of Devion, who is a renowned dragon knight devoted to wiping out dragons from the face of the world. Mm. However, uh, following encounters with a powerful ancient Eldworm and a resurrected demon named Terrorblade, uh, he also encounters a noble princess, Marana, who's on her own secret mission. Um, Davion kind of becomes embroiled in events uh, much larger than he could have imagined, rather than his narrow dragon lane. There's a lot of other things going on. There's a bloody religious war between two sects of moon goddess followers, etc. You know, uh, there is a sorcerer looking for revenge. Uh, uh, it has a cast of compelling, complex <laughs> characters. Um, spectacularly hyper violence action. Mm. This is not for five to ten year olds. It's not, at not all. even. This is not even for fifteen year olds. I no, wouldn't. No, 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 no. I don't think anyone below eighteen should be watching this. Um, yeah. It has. 
beautiful animation. It has oodles of emotional complexity on all sides, very Castlevania-esque. Mm. Uh, it's just a stunning adult anime that fleshes out the story and mythology of Dota in such a brilliant manner that captures a non-fan uh, immediately. Uh, yeah. And I can only imagine what it does to fans because I was thrown into the deep end and, and I reveled in it simply because of the story, the pacing, the character work was bloody good. Um, <laughs> and, and not to mention, you know, the very literally bloody and gory battles tap pieces that are gruesome and delightful in equal measure. And at eight episodes, this is a very short, highly enjoyable binge that, that made me beg for season two. And, and this is coming from a non-Dota fan. I mean, you've played Dota. What, what do you think about Dota's Dragon's, Dragon's Blood? Okay, so here's kind of the interesting thing, right? Like, Dota started out as a Warcraft franchise, right? Like, World of Warcraft franchise. Mm. Um, for some of you that aren't, uh, aren't aware of, like, the history and kind of the rise to popularity, um, Dota, which actually stands for Defense of the Ancients, was a custom map that was made uh, for Warcraft 3, right? Yeah. And basically spawned, like, um, the entire MOBA genre that is insanely popular today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that's like where Dota stands in the whole thing. Now the thing is because um of copyright issues, right? This whole custom map thing and the fact that Steam or Valve rather um it became so popular that it kind of spinned off into its own game. But all the assets that they were using at that point in time were all Blizzard assets, mm-hmm. so they had to kind of revamp the whole thing while keeping it looking similar enough for things to you know, kind of like makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but as a result of that, like you have, uh, if you if you do play Dota, right? Um, yeah. There's like a whole host of like character, heroes that you can choose from with all sorts of the abilities and all of them actually more or less mapped onto heroes that you get within the Blizzard um, lore. Mm-hmm. When they, when it finally became Dota 2, when it came to standard own thing, there wasn't any lore. Yeah. Um, you know, so what we are getting here in Dragon's Blood is essentially a very it's it is the introduction to what the law of Dota could possibly be, right? Mm. Because I'm I'm betting you ninety nine percent of the people who have played Dota don't care about the law. It's not that kind of game, right? Mm. Uh it, it doesn't have, you know, the kind of like uh expansive kind of story that we got in Warcraft or Warcraft Three or even like World of Warcraft. And none of those things <clears throat> matter that much for a mobile game. Uh, mm-hmm. And for them to come out guns blazing with this is kind of insane, right? Yeah. And yeah. then in addition to that, um, you know, with all the uh, animation heavy lifting done by Studio Ma, who has brought us, um, I believe his Kipo is by Studio Ma. Yeah. Um, I think we got some Young Justice. No, no, no. So Kipo uh, and Voltron Legend Defender, which are both things that we've reviewed very favorably uh, mm. on, on this podcast before. Uh, them coming out I mean, like, I'm super, super happy that this came out. Like, I never thought it would be. And right now, this stands, I think, in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. on par with Castlevania as the best video game adaptation media that we've ever gotten. Quite uh, easily, yeah. Yeah, uh, very, very easily. That is to say, it's not perfect. I do feel like it suffered some pacing problems between episodes. Uh, some of the accents are a bit iffy. Uh, <laughs> And a bit like, yeah, the whole like Scottish, Irish, Elven thing, like it was very uneven, even mm. uh, for individual characters. And that was really problematic, I think, because some very dramatic emotional moments got spoiled for me just because like, you know, the accent suddenly dropped, right? Um, yeah, but all in all, like what a spectacular kind of 
a visual feast, right? Mm. Uh, and the music is great too. The music is really, really good. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested to see where they go with this mm-hmm. um, because um, Warcraft is also doing their own anime series. Also going to be done by Netflix, if I remember correctly. Mm. Right? Uh, so, I mean, we started off the year pretty good. Apparently, Netflix is going to have 41 uh, original anime titles this year. Yeah, uh, and starting off with like Dota's Dragon's Blood is like a really, it's a really, really good indication of what's to come. Well, I'm, I'm more than happy to see what's going to happen. Oh yeah, oh yeah, what one hundred percent? You know, um, th- this is the first, um, and I guess not uh, Pacific Rim is the first enemy I've seen on Netflix this oh, year. Oh yeah, but but yeah, this is definitely the best I've seen this year, and way up there with with Castlevania. Mm. Uh, I, that's. I mean, me just saying that it's Castlevania level good is, I think, the highest compliment I can give. <laughs> we've, we've raved about Castlevania for three seasons nonstop. I think yep. most of you who have listened to us for a long time will get tired of like, oh, Castlevania is fucking awesome. Yes, it is. And so is Dota's Dragon's Blood. Yeah. Uh, it's that good. And if you are, even if you're not a fan of Dota like I am, uh, don't be put off. Nope. Don't be put off. Nope. You know, just nope. it, it introduces a brand new law very well. Uh, it's fun. It's mm. really bloody and it's hyper violent. Yeah. You know, um, this is the kind of enemy that I imagine Zack Snyder watches. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I, I don't know about that. We we can have that for a different discussion. There are far oh, yeah. more darker enemies than this one that would probably be up his alley. Yeah. That's true. So yeah, um, that's why I'm giving this an eight point five out of ten. Uh, I highly enjoyed this. Yeah, it's an eight out of ten for me. Uh, I really want to see what they continue up with the story. Uh, they've got a ton of material to work off of, uh, work with, I, I guess, with all the heroes that they have yet to introduce. Mm. So much like uh, Castlevania's first season just kept get getting get, uh, better and better over time. I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, um, Dota's Dragon's Blood. I don't know if Dragon's Blood is just like the subtitle for this story arc or this season and I, or, or what it is going to be in the future. Uh, but of course, very clearly, things ended off with uh, it, we are not done with this story yet. Uh, so the cliffhanger, yeah, yeah. The cliffhanger. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, but yeah, highly recommended. Really, really fun. Rob, please, please, if you have anything against Dota, which a lot of people do, right? Mm. Um, given its popularity and just kind of like the toxicity that uh, its player base is famous for, mm. I would encourage you to kind of set that aside, right? Like. All of that is on the players. It has nothing to do with this fantastic series, and you are, mm. uh, uh, you should give yourself a chance and watch it. Yeah, yeah, uh, highly agree, definitely. Uh, yeah, so I mean, Dota Dragon's Blood was initially supposed to be a quick hits topic. Like I had no expectations for it. So <laughs> we we pushed it up to a main topic because we both enjoyed it so yeah. much. But let's delve into quick hits, uh, where I talk about some of the titles that my co-host may or may not have seen, and if he has, he can jump in. Mm. First off, obviously, I have to begin with a big one. Directed by Adam Wingard, Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, it's a kaiju beat-em-up that serves as a direct sequel continuation to both Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and yep. Kong Skull Island. Uh, it features the long-awaited rematch between the two monsters after Klong, Kong, uh, I think he claimed the TKO victory in, in the 1962 Toho movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he won that one. So in addition to the two leading big boys, uh, the movie also co-stars humans uh, like Millie Bobby Brown, Rebecca Hall, Kyle Chandler, Brian Tyree Henry, and Alexander Skarsgård, and, and much more. 
Um, and and they all, some of them were most of them like, were in previous movies, so it does work organically into the story. Yep. Um. So what I can say, other what 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 else can I say other than the film delivers on its title? The Titan fights are easily the best part of Godzilla versus versus Kong. Mm. Uh, Adam Wingard definitely has the eye to make most of these moments feel fucking badass and look spectacular. The visuals are insane. They feature jaw-dropping fight scenes between the two iconic heavyweights that just wow you. You know, like you, you, your your breath. Uh, you, I feel like I was holding my breath throughout most of these fights. You know, when they're clobbering each other, it's a pure thrill. <laughs> just super well-designed, gnarly creature brawls all over the place. It, it's a and in in true kind of you know, in genre, there's a lot of versus titles, right? Yeah. AP, BVS, etc., etc. But, you know, in true genre versus tradition, we know that the two hero kaijus will eventually team up <laughs> with the, the true villain. Yeah. It's, just a, it's just a formula. It happens everywhere. Uh, in, this case, in this case, it's not a spoiler. Um, it's been revealed in the trailers. The true villain is Mecha Godzilla. Mm. And, oh boy, the scenes where Kong and Godzilla tag team against Mecha Godzilla, this surprisingly good coordination for two mindless monsters, are uh, <laughs> just breathtaking, exceptionally joyful to watch. You will smile your widest smile watching them team up. Um, I guess, however, uh, the bad parts are that the human elements are still so oh, bafflingly bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask that, about that. <laughs> man, um, the, the incredible actors I mentioned earlier kind of deserve better than what they were given here. Yeah. Uh, most, most of the human angles are so overstuffed, illogical, and pointless uh, that it, it constantly took me out in the film. You know, mm-hmm. it's a bit. It's a bit like when you're watching uh, the the commercial breaks in between UFC fights. You know, you just go for <laughs> go for a pee, go buy your snacks or whatever. You know, it's like, it's not important. So why do movie studios keep making this mistake? Nobody gives a fuck about people. Like that's <laughs> they, they, they are not why we bought a ticket. Yeah. Like I do not care if Mini Bobby Brown gets trampled or not. It's just I don't care. Yeah. Uh, the story and the plot is meh. And again, I ask why bother having such a convoluted story with many moving parts at yeah. all when mm. it comes to something like this just like the movie starts you know this is what i would do the movie starts godzilla is there kong is there they fight for like an hour uh and then mecha godzilla pops up then they both team up and fight mecha godzilla bam bam boom 90 minutes over yeah Th- that's all i wanted you know if it wasn't for the humans this would have been perfect so which is why <laughs> it's uh it's a six out of ten for me yeah okay okay that's fair that's fair. i mean like the I don't know what what are they calling this thing now? Is it a monster universe? What is it? The the monsterverse. Yeah, the monsterverse right now like has consistently been plagued with that that problem, right? From the moment in time when they did the first Godzilla within this particular universe, like yeah, yeah, you know, with the infamous let them fight line, and mm-hmm. like it was the same thing for Kong as well. Like humans were, you know, the weak part of the thing. I mean, sure, on on a meta level, you can kind of see that as as whatever you want, right? Um, but it's hard, I think, um, for studios to understand that we don't really need much of that. And if mm-hmm. you look at the old Godzilla vs. King Kong, right, mm-hmm. or any of the older stories, uh, um, kaiju stories, right, there's very little kind of human representation there other than them fleeing in terror, mm-hmm. right? And that worked back then. And they became cult classics for that reason. Uh, I just yeah. don't know if Hollywood is ready to let that idea go because mm-hmm. you need big actors to bring in people, I guess. Um, they're not they're not the stars of the film. Like the yeah. stars are in the title, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if we'll ever get something like that. Yeah. Uh, right? Like, same thing. Like, we're going to be talking about Pacific Rim later. Yeah, um, more kaiju. Yeah, yeah more kaiju stuff. Uh, and yeah, we'll go over that in, in a bit. But, you know, the, it was the same thing for Pacific Rim, both 1 and 2 when it came out. We we're just like, cool. Giant robots beating on giant monsters. I'm yeah. down, right? The rest of the movie, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's been a fair number of movies into this particular genre. I mm-hmm. think all the reviews have basically said the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering when we're going to get a pure like monster or monster fight. And, and yeah, just like just shape it like a fucking like WrestleMania or UFC fight card. You have yeah. like five different fights. You have like Bruce Buffer announcing or something. Yeah. Whatever. Like, just give me that, and I will I will give you like thirty bucks to watch it. You know, very simple. Yeah. This is not this is not some sort of Sundance art house film. You know. No. Like, don't have these family dynamics or whatnot, or really? like, uh, yeah, why, why? Oh yeah. my goodness! Like, why? nobody's asking for like kaiju, like Ang Lee doing kaiju, right? Like Ang Lee did. Hulk. Like Hulk, yeah, we don't want any of that, right? Give me as absurd a story as possible, like some godlike being decides to get up all the monsters for you know monster UFC, yeah, right? Like I'm down. Let's just do that, right? Like um in. I mean, to, to be fair, like, if you wanted to do, like, an art take on Godzilla, it can be done. Like, Shin Godzilla is pretty much an uh, kind of an art house take on Godzilla, you know. That is it's, true, yeah. With his layers of bureaucracy, it's a, it's kind of a Chernobyl story told via the lens of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And it can be done. And if you're presenting it that way, it can. But Godzilla versus Kong is clearly not <laughs> intended to be something like that. Yeah. So, so why bother? Yeah, so that's why it's a 6 out of 10. Okay, I think that that's totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about an indie horror film coming out of Guatemala uh, called La Laronia. It's not to be confused with Blumhouse's um, The Curse of La Laronia, which came out a year or two ago, I forgot. About two uh, years ago, yeah. Yeah, they're very different stories. Uh, this La Laronia is directed by a fellow named Jaro Bustamante, mm-hmm. and it blends together the terror of the popular Latino myth uh, of the weeping woman, and a brutal reality in this modern retelling of this uh, this historical genocide against the Mayan community in Guatemala. Uh, something that I, I frankly was not, not aware of, you know. Um, it's a real thing. Um, the, the film centers around a retired general named Enrique, who is kind of this fictionalized version of the country's former president, uh, Efren Rios uh, Mont. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's finally facing trial for the massacres he orchestrated decades ago. Um, basically under under this general slash president, um, a lot, hundreds of thousands of uh, ethnic Mayans were, were ethnically cleansed back in the day. So as a horde of angry protesters kind of threatens to invade his opulent home, um, the women of his house, you know, they, uh, the main characters are his wife, his conflicted daughter, and precocious granddaughter, they weigh their responsibility whether or not to shield uh, this old man who's becoming senile mm-hmm. uh, against the ugly truths that are being publicly revealed about him by the courts, you know. Yeah. Um, and then there's also this frightening sense that a wrathful supernatural entity is targeting the entire family for his past atrocities, the, the Lalaronia, the, the weeping woman. Uh, meanwhile, much of the family's domestic staff, you know, their mates, they flee. They're fucking scared of this. They, they're scared of both the protesters and the ghosts, mm-hmm. uh, which only leaves one loyal housekeeper, Valeriana, to take care of them until a mysterious young indigenous woman uh, arrives to become the new maid. Um, so with this amazing Guatemalan director, Jaro Bustamante, he posits that when the, natural, when the nas- national narrative of genocide refuses to be acknowledged, you know, 
mm-hmm. uh, via the, the country's popular media, uh, or it refuses to recognize that the atrocities in, in the country committed against an entire ethnic group. Um, he weaponizes popular legends in order to convey this horrifying reality in perhaps the most uh, effective rallying cry. A La Lorona is a weeping woman, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the anguished wail of a tortured mother. And there were so many tortured mothers during, ge- during this genocide, you know. Um, so it, it, it invokes genre narrative devices uh, in this entrancingly evocative film that walks between fact and folklore to create a, a shrewdly frightening piece of political and personal horror. Mm. Uh, La Lorona is very taut, it's full of dread and foreboding. Um, this is the kind of atmospheric, intelligent horror that gets under your skin and lives, lives in there for days. You know, it, it, rather than give you quick jump scares, it gives you a lot to think about. This is very highly recommended. If you've not seen Guatemala's La Lorona, remember not Blumhouse's, Guatemala's La Lorona, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10 and you definitely need to watch this. Ooh, damn. One of the best films of the year, in my opinion. To be, uh, genre or no genre, you know? Excellent. Okay, cool, cool. I'm, gonna, mm-hmm. I'm just going to put that down. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, another indie horror film called Come True. Um, this one is helmed by a one-person filmmaking crew named Anthony Scott Burns, who, get this, he wrote, directed, shot, edited, and provided the aid and provided the soundtrack for this uh, for this film under his uh, produ- under his producer pseudonym. Uh, yeah, he did everything <laughs> on this film. It's incredible, and he's done a fantastic job here. You know, uh, the level of visual flourish and subliminal storytelling and imagery, the expert pacing, uh, pacing, the great acting, the great music. Uh, he's a great producer too, apparently. Um, all collide to create this masterclass of low budget horror filmmaking. So, come true. It's the kind of film that lingers in you because it triggers a kind of subconscious primal fear yeah. rather than shocking jump scares. Um, so I'm going to give you a brief outline on the plot. Like it follows an 18-year-old girl named Sarah, who, mm-hmm. uh, a marvelous performance by Julia Sarah Stone, the actress performing her, um, who is a runaway, a homeless runaway, suffering from recurring nightmares. So because she's a runaway, she's sleeping in parks, she's sleeping on benches. All she wants is to look for a roof over her head, you know, a bit to crash in and to earn some extra cash. So Sarah ends up enrolling in a university sleep study uh, where a bunch of scientists monitor dream patterns. Uh, Basically, she just enrolls in this study because, you know, she has a place to sleep for the next couple of months, you know, and the the sleep study is paying you money. So why not? Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, she soon realizes that she's about to become a conduit to a frightening new scientific discovery. this film is the very definition of atmospheric and moody. The dreams presented here are like designed by Escher. Um, there, are, there, there are darkened bodies hanging from ceilings and walls. Monumental atrocities flank wooden bridges to doors that no one should open. And then the center of the shadowy labyrinth is a black silhouette with glowing eyes. I can't undersell the impact of the nightmares of the film. Um, Come True is the kind of experiential movie that is best viewed with zero preconceived notions. Uh, it is wildly ambitious, visually stunning, and intensely disturbing at times. Um, it is also very loose narratively that you aren't sure what's happening right until the end. Um, you know, it, there's a kind of dream logic going on here. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, when you finally think you have a grasp on the story, I, I'm not kidding, there are three, not one, not two, but three 
crazy twist that happens in the final 90 seconds that <laughs> makes you that makes you question everything again. <laughs> but again, I have to say, like the, the plot is not important here. Okay. The, impo- the importance is the, the sense of primordial dread that the film evokes. You know, there is this kind of like um the imagery that they, they show you, right? It's a bit abstract, a bit mm-hmm. the, it's imagery paired with sound, uh, a kind of weird droning atonal sound yeah. that, that triggers a panic response in viewers. Uh, and I don't know how to describe it because the, the imagery is quite abstract. You know, mm-hmm, It's just mm-hmm. like blobs and shapes and glowing things and sounds. And for some reason, it triggered a panic response in me to the point where I think like about 15 minutes in, I had to pause. Wow. Uh, I, I did not realize that it was going to be so so triggering. You know? yeah. um, the, apparently, he, the, the director slash writer slash everything uh, he was a, a psychology major and he kind of studied how to trigger this uh, right. just, just by, via random images and it really it really does it here, you know. The primordial sense of dread is is what uh, is the, the genius of the film. Uh. It is tense, it is oblique, come true, it goes to some truly strange places. So if you're a fan of minor key horror uh, and, and the soundtrack, you know, outside of the atonal sounds, mm-hmm. um, this guy, he does like some incredible synthwave music Um I think his producer name is Pilot Priest. Okay, I just looked it up. Pilot Priest. Pilot really Priest. awesome. It's very like drive-esque music. You know? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and if you can accept ambiguous narratives, this is definitely for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like art house horror, it's an 8 out of 10 for me. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. I yeah. Pi- pilot Priest as in both both vocations, right? Like Pilot Priest. Yes. Both vocations, one word. Okay. Pilot sure. Priest. Look him up. He's a great producer and apparently a great filmmaker now as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious. Were you like on headphones or anything while you were watching that particular scene? I was not watching it on headphones, but after I realized the importance of sound in the film, I decided to watch it on headphones to get the be- to get a better experience. Oh, I, I'm I'm kind of curious, right? Because uh, it's it sounds like um, maybe there's some binaural stuff going on. With yeah, that. certainly there is. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. I'm definitely gonna go check it out. Uh, if nothing else went for that, but it sounds like a fairly interesting movie. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I really like like how low budget and w- it's basically a one man passion project, and you know I, g- I gotta appreciate that. It's, yeah, that's nuts, man. I mean, like most of the time, it's like a triple threat, right? Like you write, direct, and you act, but mm-hmm. this is like next level stuff. Oh, incredible! Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm gonna be talking about season two of Solar Opposites, mm. Hulu's comedy created by Rick and Morty co- co-creator Justin Roiland. Uh, so, um, if you listen to the first season review of Solar Opposites, uh, way back when, last year, mm-hmm. I thought that Justin Roiland's animated sci-fi comedy uh, played like a good-natured subversion of sitcom tropes. Um, it featured a really fresh spin on Third Rock from the Sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it centers on a team of aliens who escaped from a dying world only to take refuge in, the, in middle America. Um, so, uh, half of the aliens are split on whether Earth is awesome and the other half think that Earth is awful. So, you know, their personality clashes and their cluelessness about the basics of human society uh, serve as the spark for the series' uh, brand of humour. Um, and despite the kind of often outlandish premises and occasionally gruesome results, the series was kind of genuinely LOL funny. You know, it's, it's very unlike the... Um, very, the chuckle oh it's so clever funny that Rick and Morty is you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like Rick and Morty is more like oh I get it you know and there's so many layers <laughs> to the joke but I often I find myself not LOLing at Rick and Morty yeah. um, so, so the opposite is more of an LOL venture 
uh, and it's served up with the same Rick and Morty-esque frantic pacing uh, and easygoing ris- disregard for rigid structures of traditional TV narrative. You know, The show celebrates as much as it lampoons sitcom narratives. There is a genuine affection between the characters, you know, making for a nicely humanistic grounding to what could otherwise have been just a series of uh, you know, madcap weirdness for its own sake. You know? mm-hmm. So unlike Royland's other show, Rick and Morty, which sometimes feels like you know, crazy shit for the sake, Okay. <laughs> yeah. This one actually has some 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 emotional grounding. Yeah. So the the setup is fundamentally the same as in season one. Uh, so much so that the first episode of season two is a playful wink at the you know the you know how sitcoms is like everything everything's the same history of sitcom you know every episode restarts to the same to the same point. There's yeah. no long lasting co- consequences to sitcom structure. You know. Uh-huh. So like the beginning of the second season is the the aliens have fixed their ship. Okay. And they're going back home, or they're going to find a new planet to terraform. Uh, their ship malfunctions and crashes exactly back in the same place. <laughs> uh, and then one of the characters says, "This puts us right. This puts us right back to where we were a year ago." And that's how the season starts. You know, so essentially nothing has changed. Oh um, so it's 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 a great riff on the of the classic multi-camera sitcom formula, uh, which emphasizes self-contained episodes that introduce and resolve for conflict within a half hour, packed with jokes that you don't need any prior knowledge to to get. You know, there's no like um, there's no running jokes. Um, the alien family of, you know, there's the fussy scientist Corvo, Slacker Terry, uh, moody teen Yamulak, and, and bubbly teen Jesse. Uh, they also have a world-destroying baby pupa. Uh, who, <laughs> and, and, and they all, like, remain brilliant vessels to carry us through these, kind of, these kinds of stories because they're such colossal screw-ups. It only makes us sense that, you know, like, when they stumble into a problem of their own creation every episode, only... To resolve it in the most destructive way possible, it's a formula that works over and over again, and it keeps getting wild this, this season. You know, the 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 problems get bigger, and the resolu- resolutions get more destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's great, it's brilliant. Um, if you've seen the first season of Solar Opposites, and if this all sounds familiar, that's because yes, to an extent, season two is more of the same. But I don't view it as a negative at all. I gave the first season a very high score mm-hmm. because whatever flaws it had was negligible in terms of, you know, because uh, its strengths, it was such a strong, surprising, and hilarious season. And season two basically just takes the season one formula and takes it to five times more, you know, like, it just goes bigger. It goes <laughs> way bigger than season one. It's the same, but bigger. Yeah. So, like, while the new season mostly conforms to the same premise and collection of fish-out-of-water character dynamics, mm-hmm. there are some mild differences in the early episodes to suggest that the protagonists are starting to adjust to their new lives, you know, they're settling into rhythms and roles geared towards making life on Earth more tolerable. Mm-hmm. Um, Corvo and Terry in particular have more of a married couple vibe this season. Uh, Yamilek and Jesse are still squabbling siblings, but they've begun to adopt a more uh, laissez-faire approach to dealing with each other's choices. Uh, and for a while, that sweetness endures. The first half of the season maintains the show's signature blend of outrageous and often gruesomely violent scenarios mm-hmm. with a fast-paced blitzkrieg of jokes and sunny, even downright earnest sentiment. Again, very unlike Crick and Morty. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a more is more tendency towards turning up the dial on all those elements. Some of the installments, you know, I think in episode 3, there's a story where Yamilek tries to harness the power of BDE, Big Dick Energy. Uh, <laughs> Only for his genitals to, to outstrip his control and he, it starts melting away any humans within its radius of influence. Um, it's practically South Parkian in, it, in its uh, raunch and acidic cultural observations and it's great. But in the back half of the season, Solar Opposite starts to reveal like a slight 
slightly darker view of both its world and its characters. Uh-huh. Like I, I, I won't say more, so I won't spoil it, lah. But let's just say, like our misanthropic protagonists are not so likable anymore. It crosses over from Seinfeld meanness to it's always sunny meanness. Mm. Uh, so like, yeah, thankfully though, you know, like the series is still really good and funny enough to carry the jokes, uh, even though you don't quite like these people anymore. Yeah. Um, the series' best element, in my opinion, though, is not the family. It is the ongoing show within a show drama that takes place in a mini- miniaturized society of Yamulek's wall. If you don't know what that is, Yamulek has been shrinking random humans into miniature size, into like N-Man size, and he's keeping them in a terrarium behind his wall. Uh, and in season one, it kind of played very funny because they did like a whole like post-dystopian uh, episode just based on the humans trapped in the wall. Uh, and this season, uh, the wall continues to be an amazing storytelling po- uh, tool for mm-hmm. Solar Opposites. It continues to surprise with engrossing, satisfying, hilarious, and creative plot dis- uh, developments that absolutely work as, an, as these people, these tiny people evolve into a civilization of their own, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, this season, like, long-running story behind the wall is a murder mystery. Like, somebody in the wall has been murdering other people and, you know, it's basically a cop show within the wall. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it takes this direction in a, ve- in a very vastly unique uh, direction than what we got last season because last season was more of a post-dystopian, we had got to build a society kind of thing. Yeah. This season, the society is here. How do you handle the society? What if there's a murderer? Is there a police force behind the wall? Etc, etc. Yeah. Really great season. 8 out of 10 for me. I love Solar Opposites. You've recently seen uh, season 1. You know What, what do you think about this? Yeah, so I, I only finished season 1. I was planning to catch on season 2. Uh, I mean, like, you had already reviewed it and you gave it, I think you gave it like a 7 or an 8. Uh, I gave it an 8 as well. Yeah, uh, so, you know, definitely want to catch it up because um, for people in Singapore, it is available on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you want to check out both season one and season two, that's where you can go and get it. Um, I totally agree with you um, as far as uh, how different it is from Rick and Morty. Uh, the humor is um, wildly, I mean, it's not the total opposite thing, like, but there are a lot more moments here that are definitely more upfront, right? It, like, it's less... Uh, subtle is not even the right word. I don't think anybody would describe Rick and Morty as subtle. Uh, yeah. But it's definitely more salient, right? The kind of humor that is available in Solar Opposites. Um, so I'm really, uh, in, I'm I'm really quite fascinated by the fact that you say that like, season two starts off pretty much on the same note, or even in the same spot. Uh, I'm probably going to be catching that soon enough, actually, if we don't have too many things to cover over yeah. the next couple of weeks. So looking forward to that. Yeah, if you're in North America, watch it on Hulu. If you're in other territories such such as us, it is available on Disney Plus because if you are not aware, Disney owns everything. They bought Fox. Fox owns Hulu. So that's what happens. Yeah. 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 So the opposite is on Disney Plus right now. Eventually we'll just watch everything on Disney Plus. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. There'll be like two streaming services, Disney Plus and like <laughs> Coca Cola Plus or something. Coca-Cola. Uh next up. I'm going to be talking about Chaos Walking. Mm. Uh, this movie supposed <laughs> to be released in 2017. In uh, fact, no, no shit. The, the filming of this movie actually finished in early 2017. Uh, the movie was done, 2017. Four years ago, done. But a series of disastrous test screenings and then reshoots followed by more bad test screenings and then more reshoots. Repeat that on and on and on. They pushed this film to 2021. It's been redone so many times. Yeah. Like you, you think you think the Snyder Cut had a tough road to, to getting out. You know, it has nothing on Chaos Walking. <laughs> so now that it's finally out, like what's this cursed bit big budget blockbuster worth the wait? 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll give my verdict shortly, but like, I think you know where this is going. Um, <laughs> So it's based on the sci-fi trilogy Chaos Walking by Patrick Ness, yeah. uh, a series of books. And, and, and this movie is directed by Doug Lyman, who is a really good director. He directed Age of Tomorrow. Mm. It stars Tom Holland as Todd Hewitt and Daisy Ridley as Viola. So in the not-too-distant future, uh, Todd discovers Viola, a mysterious girl who crash lands on his planet where all the women have disappeared. And all the men are afflicted by something called the noise. It is a force that puts all their thoughts on display. You know, you can literally hear everything the male characters are thinking all the time. Um, in this dangerous landscape, Viola's life is threatened, uh, and Todd vows to protect her as she journeys through this uh, dystopia. Mm -hmm. So here's the quick review. Um, this film is garbage. It's a piece of trash. Uh, and Ooh. sadly for... Sadly okay. for Tom Holland, right? Yeah. So sad. This is his second bad movie that he's in this month after Cherry. Oh, God. Cherry, directed by the Russo brothers. Yeah. Uh, if you can imagine, right, it's worse than this film. Uh, and, and when you hear my review, my, my rating for this film, you, you will wonder just how bad Cherry is. Both films are garbage. It's, this film is just not as big of a piece of garbage as, as Cherry is, but it's quite bad. You know, the, the high concept gimmick slash premise becomes annoying very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the film features characters that we don't get to know at all. Just, just, just chasing each other and yelling for two hours. It's a very tedious, loud, unwatchable mess with almost no redeeming value whatsoever. I'm giving this a 3 out of 10. Uh, so yeah, imagine how bad Cherry is. Oh god. Oh, yeah, man. Tom Holland really, Tom Holland really, really needs to pick his roles more wisely. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, he needs a new agent, basically, because like the Spider-Man thing isn't gonna last him forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh man, yeah. It's it's just funny that it's called Chaos Walking, and it's seen so much chaos, chaos right? Yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. four fucking years. Yeah, insane, insane. This movie <laughs> should have been left on the shelf and and just let to die, lah. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Boss Level. Um, it has been nearly seven years since Joe Carnahan's last film, mm -hmm. but the stylistic hallmarks of his work remain unmistakable here. Um, his previous films, if you haven't seen them, they've all been popcorn action blockbusters. And I do enjoy this kind of muscular genre fare because he's always had a feel from composition and camera movement. Yeah. But it's a cut above his peers. Uh, if you've seen Smoking Aces, The Grey, uh, stuff like that, mm. uh, he's achieved the level of impressionistic immersion through rapid editing, uh, but has never sacrificed clarity and continuity. Uh, the action movies, the action in his movies always has a, a spatial sense. I like the, the space and the physics. I always understand what's going on, you know? Yeah. It's, not, it's not like Michael Bay Transformers where I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Uh, which is why I anticipated his return in Boss Level. So, the movie follows a special forces badass called Roy Palver, played by Frank Grillo, uh, who is trapped in a time loop that constantly repeats the day of his murder, forcing him to uncover clues about a secret government project that could unlock the mystery behind his death. Yeah. Uh, so, in a race against the clock, Palver must hunt down this guy called Colonel Vec Venter, who's played by an unhinged Mel Gibson, uh, which is to say just Mel Gibson. Uh, <laughs> and and the, the, he's the powerful head of this government program, like Mel Gibson. Uh, so he also has to outrun uh, skilled, ruthless assassins who are determined to keep him from the truth. Mm -hmm. So he has to break out of the loop, save his family, live once again for tomorrow. Uh, think of this as the ridiculous balls-to-the-wall, blood-and-guts version of Groundhog Day. Uh, and it's not nearly as good as Age of Tomorrow, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a similar riff on the time loop genre, but this one is is very fun, if not very smart, lah. 
But yeah. this is fun, right? You know. Yeah. So I must, okay. I must say, yeah, that Frank Grillo is a great action hero. Uh, yes. And, and this is you hear that look, right? You know, you can you can tell from Captain, the Captain America movies. He can play a good villain as well as an action hero. Yeah. Uh, this is the kind of dumb, wildly entertaining movie that I would have loved in my teens. Uh, it's a six point five out of ten for me. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Next up uh, is The Irregulars on Netflix. It mm-hmm. is set in Victorian London and it, the series follows a gang of troubled street teens who are manipulated into solving crimes for the sinister Dr. Watson and his mysterious business partner, the elusive Sherlock Holmes. But the crimes start to take on a horrifying supernatural edge and a dark supernatural power emerges. So it's up to The Irregulars to come together to not only save London but the entire world uh, in short, it's, a, it's basically a supernatural teen take on Sherlock Holmes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a unique premise, but I have to say that The Irregulars is quite regular. You oh. know, um, it, it, it's not to say it's bad, yeah. just very expected, perfectly mediocre. You know, um, I know the formula, you take an established cultural touchstone here, it's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. You, add, you add a group of teens... Bam! TV show. You know, to play it safe, you inject storylines with supernatural mumbo jumbo for color and special effects. And voila, it's Netflix ready. Um, the first episode is kind of shaky, but the series kind of stabilizes as, as it progresses. So, like mm-hmm. nothing is all at all startling. Nothing is original. Yeah. Nothing is actually particularly good. But it flows along to the point where like you suddenly realize that you've watched a bunch of episodes, mm-hmm. and then you you're wondering how you got here. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those shows that like it's not good, but then like you you're watching and then suddenly it's like, hey, season one is over. How? I I meant I meant to stop after episode one, but it, it just kept going. Um, it is a five out of ten overall, uh, but yeah. There is a there is a certain binge bingeability to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, like, I I what would be the nearest like analogous to that? I, I think a lot a lot of Netflix programming is like that. It's yeah. designed to be like that. You know? Yeah. I'm guessing Lucifer for me, like Lucifer season one was exactly that. Right. I was just like, oh man, this is kind of like. Not very good, but uh, you know, I have finished like four seasons of it already, so um, could be one of those things. Could be one of those things, indeed. You know, and and that wraps it up for quick hits. Uh, next up, uh, my co-host Isa would will, will pick up the slack. Yep, he he has in Pacific Rim: The Black and Snowpiercer season two. Yeah, let's kick it off with uh, Netflix's adaptation or spin-off of the Pacific Rim franchise with this anime mm. series. What do you think about Pacific Rim: The Black? Uh, how many episodes did you get into? Uh, I got into three, I think. Yeah, so uh, three episodes. So I, I, I finished up all seven episodes. Uh, by the time I hit three, I was like, okay, let's just see where this goes. Um, not quite what what happened to you with the irregulars. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did have to kind of like push through a little bit. Uh, but for those of uh, you who want to know what it is about, uh, it's a Enemy style animation on, on Netflix. Uh, basically, the story is about what was happening during Australia within the Pacific Rim universe as the kaiju mm. were coming in. If you do yeah. recall, there is... I, I do believe it's in the second movie. Um, they, they talk about the black, right? Which is basically um, everything... Uh, the entire uh, human infrastructure in Australia gets shut down uh, yeah. and it is abandoned to the kaiju. So, uh, in this... Um, in, in this world where the kaiju have kind of taken over and, and the remnants of humanity are just kind of like um, scavenging around in the ruins of, of you know, Sydney and, and Melbourne and all of that kind of thing. Uh, we follow two siblings. Um, 
Taylor and Haley, who are kids of um, pilots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of Jaeger pilots, uh, who basically, for the large part of their existence, um, have grown up in a little commune of survivors tucked away uh, in the mountains, right? Um, waiting for the return of their parents who have gone over to Sydney to seek help. Uh, however, many years have passed and not, um, the people are getting anxious, basically. Whereupon, yeah. they stumble upon their very own Jaeger. And lo and behold, the older boy, Taylor, used to be a Jaeger pilot cadet. Uh, yeah. So, there kind of starts their adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, um, their commune gets hunted down by a ridiculously huge um, kaiju called Copperhead. Uh, they kind of meet like a, a bogan... Uh, a bogan mercenary group um, mm. who's out to collect Jaeger parts and, and, you know, a couple of other characters along the way. Yep. Uh, essentially, you know, it's, an, it's, it's about them just, you know, trying to find uh, their parents and eventually uh, it progresses towards a kind of vague unknown that they may or, their parents may or may not still be alive. Right? Uh, yeah. um, as far as what we expect from Pacific Rim stuff, the fights are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not a big fan of this style of cell uh, shaded animation. Uh, never, yeah, yeah. never have been. Uh, and I do feel that a lot of the time, uh, when they pick this animation style, fights tend to be very difficult to animate realistically. And mm-hmm. then stylistically, um, what you decide to do stylistically in fight scenes, uh, then makes or breaks what's going on. So the the main problem I have with Pacific Rim: The Black is that everything is very uneven. There are moments in time where the voice acting is really good, and then there are moments in time where it's just horrible, like it's terrible. Like the, even the lip syncing isn't synced up correctly. Um, mm. Mouths are moving when nothing's being said. Uh, words are coming out when mouths are not moving. You know, yeah, um, it, it reminds me of Genlock a bit, the Rooster Teeth series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like this feels a lot like Genlock Plus, very honestly, right? Like it, mm. it, it totally feels like that. Uh, the pacing is pretty terrible. Um, yeah, the music is okay, but like all in all, like when you go into a franchise like Pacific Rim and you're thinking like, okay, you know what? I want Max versus Kaiju. And yeah. they do give you some of that, but it isn't enough fighting or enough of that kind of like epic battles to justify the slog of the human drama, right? Mm. So kind of in the same way that, you know, you were talking about in, in, in Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, but this one is like, yeah, it's over seven episodes. Like the, the, the conflict is not well built up. The characters are not well fleshed out. Um, you know, they have a semi-convincing villain uh, which I was kind of like impressed by, but like that's short lived. Um, yeah, and at the end of the day, the whole mystery about the thing doesn't get like revealed very well. The tension is constantly like lo- tight and loose all the time, and you know, it's kind of a mess, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and uh, I, and I'm, I'm just wondering if it's like when Pacific Rim came out, it was wildly popular and wildly successful, right? Not perfect at all, but it gave people Max versus Kaiju, which is not something that we've seen from Hollywood in quite a fair time, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Transformers aside and all that nonsense, because you can't actually see anything on the fucking screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we see Max and Kaijus in all their glory um, for the first one. The second one was a bit more meh because, like, they kind of were rehashing kind of monster designs. They were rehashing kind of the same kind of fights as well. 
Uh, they gave us more human drama, which we didn't want in the first place. And then now we come to this, which is the exact same downward um, curve, right? That we have been getting for so long. The fights aren't great. The monster, yeah. the, the kaiju designs aren't anything imaginative whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. And and the story is just kind of out of whack. Like there's no balance to to all of that, and it's just really really uneven all the time. So much so that it gets annoying. That being said, if it's just something that you want to put on screen and like veg out to while you're eating your dinner by yourself and there's nothing better to do with your time, then sure, right? Like some of the visuals, actually some of the landscapes are really beautiful, mm-hmm. rendered. But outside of that, eh, I'm going to give this a 5 out of 10. Okay, yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, yes, let's move on to Snowpiercer Season 2. Um, of course, here we're talking about the... Uh, TV series starring David Diggs, Jennifer Connelly, and for season two, we have added Sean Bean into the mix. Uh-huh. Uh, he hasn't died yet, as Ooh. is uh, mandatory for all of the characters Sean Bean has ever played. Tradition. Uh, yeah, but you know, uh, we are quite a ways into the season so far, and and he's still alive. Uh, although things are coming to a fore, and that might or might not change. Uh, I know you weren't really impressed with um, what you saw of season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I remember correctly, I was the one who reviewed that together with Hardy. Um, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> but I'm staying on because I love David Diggs and I love Jennifer Connelly and I thought it was a decent enough show. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of season one, we kind of left on the cliffhanger whereby uh, Mr. Wilford, on the prototype train that um, preceded the Snowpiercer, has now reappeared on O'Ellis, um, which is the prototype train and has alleged itself onto the back of Snowpiercer uh, with all the ups and downs and the democratic experiment that has taken place on Snowpiercer in Season 1. An outside threat now threatens to undo all of that with Mr. Wilford's kind of like mythical existence becoming corporeal. Um, Mm. It is very interesting to see how Sean Bean's portrayal of Mr. Wilford's character kind of like insidiously seeps into um, the psyche of the train, uh, the people on the train. Uh, and that causes like a whole bunch of political conflicts. Uh, and and it, it, that's basically where the train is at, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Does it make the show better necessarily than what we got in season one? Not necessarily. It is definitely more complicated and more complex. There are more variables involved the performances are still by and large fairly even and decent. Uh, But I do feel that without having resolved so many of the threads from season one and bringing in an event of this kind of like uh, magnitude to shake things up even before things are vaguely even settled is a little annoying, right? Ah, Uh, Because there are just these things hanging in the air that you don't have answers to, right? And those answers would have made this development far more compelling, in my opinion. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. It could very well be that, you know, the writers are playing, you know, are juggling like eight balls at one time and we are, we just got to sit tight and wait for everything to land, right? Yeah. Which might be the case, right? I think they have a good enough cast and they kind of pulled it off a number of times in season one where, you know, everything kind of like falls into place and then it all kind of makes sense. Um, so, uh, there is a possibility in the, over the next, um, I, I'm guessing we're into the last third of the series, uh, of the season, uh, that 
everything could land, it's going to make total sense and the show's going to, uh, going to feel really good. Um, but we're not at that point right now. Um, if you are a big fan of what they did in season one, um, season two is not bad, but it's nothing great. I'm just going to give it a 5.5 out of 10 for this season. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, seems fair. Uh, seems about where I expect Snowpiercer to be good, just not great. Yeah. Worth a watch, but you know, nothing special. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, um, for this episode, I'm going to wrap it up with the return of the pull list, where I'll be talking about not a new book, but an old one called House of Leaves. Mm. Um, a cult classic book, House of Leaves, by Mark Z. I'm going to butcher this name, Mark Z. Daniel, Daniel Lewiski? That Daniel Lewiski. I think so. I'm gonna call him. I'm gonna call him Mark. <laughs> yeah. House of Leaves by Mark. Uh, was published over 20 years ago. Um, and but I've only just read it thanks to a loan from Chris Falk. Um, uh, ah. our, our our friend Chris Falk, who, yeah. who for some reason bought two copies of this book and gave me one. Um, <laughs> don't know why. Uh, I assumed when he loaned me the book, when he gave me the book, that. He had read it and it was like, whoa, this is fucking awesome. Uh, I want you to read it. This is great. Uh, then when I finished the book and then I talked to Chris about it, he hasn't even read it. Oh my God, Chris. <laughs> Go read House of Leaves by Mark Z. Daniel Lewski uh, because it's really good. Uh, and, and I finally understand why it was such a hyped cult classic back in, back in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the most uh, challenging uh, disorienting and creative novel I've come across. Uh, the basic plot is kind of a meta onion, mm-hmm. just just layers upon layers. It centers on this guy who is slowly losing his mind as he writes a book about a mysterious essay that he found. Okay, okay. so this guy is going crazy because he's writing this mysterious. Uh, he's writing a book about an essay that he found. And the essay is about a possibly fictional documentary okay. that he watched. Uh, then this documentary, in turn, is about a family whose house is impossibly larger on the inside than on the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so it does the, those are the layers. Uh, you're, re- you're basically reading a guy writing about a thing that he found. Then you, you, found, you learn about the guy that's writing the essay about the documentary that he found. And then you, know, the doc- then you learn about the documentarian who actually made the, the thing, the people living in the, inside the house, etc., etc. A bit of a complex plot structure. Yeah. Um, but what's great about it is, is that not only did the existential horror of the story give me nightmares, <laughs> this, this is, it, it really did give me nightmares. This is one of the few things I've read that stuck in my head and scared me, you know, like without the visual aid of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I find horror books to be difficult to be truly frightening. Yeah. Uh, and this one was truly frightening to me. Um, and, and the book is also immensely intriguing because of its experimental formatting. Um, page layouts uh, vary because at points, the, you know, the book must be rotated to be read. Uh, fonts change in size, type, and color to evoke uh, agoraphobic or claustrophobic effects or sometimes offer coded messages which you can decipher. Um, there are multiple first-person narrators as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there are copy- copious footnotes which themselves have footnotes because, you know, like, like the essay has a footnote and then the, the author who's making a book about the essay also has footnotes, you know, etc about the footnotes. You know. wow. um, yeah. Um, it's a bit like uh, yeah, Jonathan Strange and, and uh, yeah, you know, that, that kind of vibe. Right, right. Uh, and, and the author uses a variety of, of writing styles. There are academic dissertation style mm-hmm. uh, with the essay. There's uh, the style of news articles. Um, he even does his own artwork 
to uh, when when people are trying to describe rooms within this impossibly large house. Yeah. Uh, there are poems, letters, interview transcripts, and video transcripts. Uh, so they all coalesce to to tell this labyrinth story about the labyrinth inside the house. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a fair bit of effort to get get through, but I promise you, it rewards your commitment. Um, this book has an amazing way of crawling under your skin and taking root. Uh, when I read it, um, quite on purpose, you know, the book is a lot about sleep schedules, about how um, whatever you witness inside the house kind of affects how you view the world and your sleep. Yeah. Um, and then when I when I read it, my sleep schedule, which is already astoundingly bad, <laughs> uh, became even more irregular and bizarro. Um, I started to look at things differently. The world changed, you know, but not in any big way. Mm-hmm. But there was a definite shift in how, um, in how I perceived the world. Much like how the world shifts for the characters in the book, mm. were forced to comprehend something incomprehensible. Um, there are sections in the book that I found so surprising and affecting uh, that I had to put it down to to give myself a minute to take in what I'd read and go over it in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, every person I've met who has read this book has something to say about it. Uh, something you know much more personal than just just like oh yeah I liked it or oh the book's overhyped you know mm-hmm. there is a visceral reaction to the book that 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 the writing can elicit and I find it fascinating it's a bit like the written version of what I was talking about in Come True yeah um, so here's the thing about the House of Leaves you can enjoy it simply as a horrifying story that could possibly be true mm-hmm. uh, you could enjoy it as a love story on on a number of different levels. Uh, you can enjoy it as a co- collection of puzzles and codes and ciphers that you can decipher. Yep. Uh, you can enjoy it as a unique reading experience that you that will make you uh, fall back in love with actual paper books uh, because there's no way you can read this book on on an ebook. You know, yeah, it's, it's sure. not possible. Like formatting wise, it's just not can't, can't be done. Um, or you can enjoy it by laughing at the office. You know, he has this really h- hilarious satire of academic essay writing mm-hmm. you know it's it's filled with nonsense references using like huge like 18 multi-syllable technical terms to express something that could have been said with five simple words <laughs> that kind of thing yeah um however you choose to enjoy it you've just got to commit to it the book's reality captures you and and you got to write it out until you finish the book you know when you're done You'll, you'll probably find that the house has taken up some space inside your head. Yep. Uh, and it probably won't leave. Uh, it's been a couple of months since I read this book and it's still with me. Uh, I, I find this to be a, a, a perfect work. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. Uh, you should read House of Leaves if you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that was my review and recommendation for House of Leaves by Mark Z. Daniel Lesky. I think I've gotten the hang of it. Yeah. Daniel Lesky. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever read House of Leaves? I have not. So um, House of Leaves was actually introduced to Chris and I by Kit. Oh. Yeah, so he was the one who was like, oh, I really want you guys to kind of check this out. Uh, and I don't know how Chris ended up with two copies, actually, but still. Yeah, yeah. so I I made a mental note of it and he kind of like shoved it aside because it did sound like a monstrous task mm. to go through. And I think like just at that point in time when the recommendation was made, I I just like, you know, didn't feel like I had to hit space for it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like once I'm done with all the Dune books, Mm-hmm. Uh, which hopefully is soon. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take the copy from you and just kind of like see where it goes, which is kind of fascinating because I was taking a look at Kid's copy mm-hmm. and uh, he has notes on the book. Ah. Like his own notes on the book among the notes that are already on the book. Yeah. Uh, so that just kind of gave it like a like additional layer of complexity as I was looking at it that just made it incredibly intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean like just based upon like so many close friends recommending it 
um, and just how good of a review you just gave it, yeah. I'm definitely going to put it down in my near the top of my two read list um, for this year at least. Yeah, yeah. The book is really easy and hard to get through. Yeah. There are like sometimes there are, like there's a thirty or forty page stretch that will take you maybe a couple of days to get through because you know sometimes it's very tiny writing, a lot of newspaper clippings and articles and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, tri- triple columned pages where there's a lot to read. You know. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In tiny fonts and sometimes you can get through like two hundred pages in five minutes because there's one word a page oh. and it's getting smaller or bigger things like that. You know? Yeah. So it's yeah. It's, it's it's difficult to comprehend like, but it's it's great. You know. Uh, yeah, so yeah, House of Leaves, I recommend it to, to you and Chris, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> please go read the book that you gave me. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, have you ever done that before? Give someone a book that you've never read? I have never posted anything on social media or given anyone a recommendation that I haven't personally like vetted. <laughs> like, I know a lot of people like to post like like trailers or for things that I have not that they are upcoming and stuff. I'm, yeah. I never post anything about that's upcoming. I only post or, or talk about things that I personally know, like I can vouch for. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't recommend anything that like I can't vouch for. I have never read just based on like, you know, like word of mouth or, or anything like, like if I've personally read it, then I will tell you about it. And I've personally read this. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, given what we do, I think that's the best way to kind of go about it. Yeah, it's true. And, and and for the most part, you know, most of the things like I recommend are ahead of time anyways because I get access to them. So yeah, it's mm. pretty much the same thing. Yep. Uh, we'll be back for a couple of new Behold episodes next mm-hmm. month in the month of April. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, modern teen shows uh, featuring Euphoria, mm-hmm. Never Have I Ever, In My Skin, and Sex Education. Uh, and basically talk about a, a little bit about the differences between modern teen shows, the Gen Z teen shows yep. versus the Gen X slash millennial teen shows that we grew up with. Uh-huh. Uh, very different, very different, obviously. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, we'll be back uh, a couple of weeks after that for uh, what I would like to call naturalistic slice of life films, uh, almost non-narrative films, mm-hmm. stuff like where a camera is just a fly on the wall and you're watching people do things. Uh, the main topic, of course, is going to be Chloe Zhao's uh, Nomadland and mm. Chloe Zhao's The Rider, a bit of a Chloe Zhao special. Yep. To complement that, uh, uh, there is a Japanese film called Shoplifters, which I really like, and uh, the Florida Project by Sean Baker, which I really love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, excited for that. And next month, another big one for genre. Uh, blockbusters are back, guys. Mortal Kombat. Uh, <laughs> Coming, the R-rated version of Mortal Kombat is coming soon on yeah. HBO Max. I'm so excited for this. It looks perfect. It, it, this looks like what Godzilla's Kong should have been. Yeah, for sure, right? And this yeah. time, like, you know, we're just skipping all the... I mean, I'm there's bound to be some human drama, but just based upon the Red Band trailer itself so far, it looks like they're going to give us very little of that, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see how it goes. I am really excited. Um, the trailer got me hyped, so... Um, yeah, let's see how gory they can make this, right? Because I do feel like uh, previous Mortal Kombat movies have always been kind of hamstrung. PG. Yeah, yeah. so um, fingers crossed. So that's only one of two main topics. The second main topic is the first season of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if anyone else... And, and, as of this recording, I've only seen the first two episodes. Same here. I gotta say, episode two... Phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal fucking episode. Yeah. Uh, added so many layers to every character, villain... And non-villain alike. Yeah. Uh, love the show so far. It's almost the antithesis of Wonder Vision in every way, mm-hmm. but yet equally compelling. Yeah, and it's mind blowing, right? Like it's yeah, mind blowing yeah. to have like these two completely different things come out from Disney Plus. 
yeah. and just kind of like continue to peel away at this weird onion that they've they've kind of like grown uh mm-hmm. in completely different ways i'm i'm super hyped uh to see what they're gonna do with um with this entire season of uh falcon and winter soldier and then uh immediately after that it's gonna be loki right yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's Black Widow first, and then Loki. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm super super hyped to see like what they're doing with this because like at this point in time, Marvel TV can't fail. So. Yeah. 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 We got Loki coming up. We got Hawkeye coming up. We got Shang Chi. We got the Eternals. We got Spider Man from Home. Mm. Um. Of course, Black Widow, as I mentioned. So, uh, there will probably be not. There will never be a week without uh, an MCU product out there, and I'm quite happy. Uh, honestly, I don't think I'll. I don't think I've ever gotten oversaturated with it. It doesn't feel like it. as long as it's good, right? Yeah. Like just keep just keep giving it to me. As long yeah. as it's good, it's fine. Yeah. I I mean like I, I feel with a lot of the weaker MCU movies, there was always like these like significant gaps. So they did feel like kind of filler. But yeah. like you know, we've always gotten like back to back. What did we get? We got Captain Marvel between two Avengers films. Uh it was Captain Marvel and Ant Man and the Wasp yeah. between Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah, I mean those three weren't necessarily that great, but it never at any point in time felt like too much, you know. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh of course, uh the way of the house has been the anime adaptation yeah. of a manga that we reviewed coming out on Netflix uh early next month. So I will we'll just throw that up as a main topic only because we've already discussed the manga. Yeah. So we wanna we we both wanna see how the anime adaptation holds up. Yeah. Uh for quick hits, uh, a lot of big ones actually. I'm gonna be talking about Invincible, the Amazon Prime adaptation of Robert Kirkman's uh, comic book Invincible. It's been really good so far. The first three episodes are out. I highly encourage you already. Like, I know I'm going to love the show. Yasuke is coming out on Netflix as well, which Ooh. is an anime about the first uh, African samurai. Um, Infinity Train returns to HBO Max for its fourth and final season. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the end of Infinity Train. Uh, Shadow and Bone is coming out on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a Melissa McCarthy comedy called Thunder Force, which is her as a superhero. It looks hilarious. So I'm going to watch that. Um, there is an Amazon show called Them, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. It's a bit like I, I saw the first episode at SRB Southwest. Um yeah. the premise is like you saw Lovecraft Country episode three. Yes. You know, the, the black family that moves into the haunted house. Yep. Yeah, but what if that episode was an entire season? Is what the family Oh. Right, yeah. right. Cause I was reading something about uh yeah. Um there were comparisons being made about them and, and get out. Uh not get out. Yeah. Uh Lovecraft. Lovecraft, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds... I mean, I'll watch it for sure. I, I did enjoy that episode. Yeah. Uh, the lead actress is the girl from Us, which I find hilarious because, you know, the only girl <laughs> in Us is Us and them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, that's our lineup for the next genre. Uh, tune in next time. Uh, to Van, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.